What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. I'm the CEO of Redist, a technology company focused on innovative public financing for real estate projects. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now let's build something. Today, our guest is urban designer Ifoma Ebo. Ifoma is the founding principal at Creative Urban Alchemy, a New York City-based studio that specializes in strategies and frameworks for design, engagement, and spatial planning in the areas of architecture, urban planning, real estate development, and environmental sustainability. Previously, she worked at the New York City Department of Housing Preservation and Development, where she was the Director of Pre-Development Planning and Urban Design, and also at the Office of the Mayor of the City of New York, and at the New York City Department of Design and Construction. She began her career as a designer at ARG Design, Anshin Plus Allen, and MVE Plus Partners. Ifoma teaches at the graduate level at Columbia University and Syracuse University and has taught previously at Cornell and the University of Cape Town. She is also active with community initiatives, including with Architecture for Humanity and the Black Space Urban Collective. Today, we'll be talking about the perfect New York Street project. More broadly, we will talk about how the pandemic has given cities a golden opportunity to rethink the urban streetscape. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us, Ifoma. Thank you so much for inviting me, Atif. This is a pleasure. Absolutely. Especially as a fellow MIT alum, I'm very happy that that you're here. So you began your design studies at Cornell. Uh, Tell us about your time there, both from the academic side, as well as I've heard it's it's a lot of fun, the undergrad program there. Tell me about the fun side as well at Cornell. Yeah, you know, I start with like, I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York. And so I was very much raised a city kid. Mm -hmm. And so going upstate was really the first time I engaged with like the wilderness, like the great outdoors, seeing deer. Wait, Prospect Park isn't the great outdoors? Random (laughs) deer and bunnies in Prospect Park. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, looking out your back window and seeing deer in your backyard, you know, rabbits hopping around, (laughs) beavers, (laughs) just, you know, chilling on the street. That was what it was like 
being on Ithaca campus and it was beautiful. I mean, the campus is so gorgeous, literally, and it has gorgeous, you know, in it. And so it was a really, I think the five years I was there in architecture school was a real engagement with the outdoors and, you know, learning about hiking and skiing. So, yeah, it was it was a wonderful time. I even spent most of my summers there as well because I just got so addicted. And I think it really, it taught me about that side of myself that I really enjoy it. And I think I've been craving it thus far, which is sort of how it led me to just traveling and living in different different cities, like leaving New York City because I felt like I needed that more. (laughs) Academically, it was also great. Um, Cornell has a wonderful architecture department, has a fantastic African and African-American studies department, and so these are the places, the, and a really wonderful art program and planning. So these were sort of the, the four mm-hmm. subjects that I sort of took all my collective elective courses in. Mm-hmm. And it was a really great place for me to do that because they had stellar professors in each of those arenas. So I would take sculpture classes and make furniture and, you know, take really amazing Africana studies courses, learning about just the the black experience in America. I mean, the thing is, like, I'm black. I'm in America, but you, but to learn it, you know, to, to sort of like take <laughs> courses where people are teaching you about that history. It's like I never experienced that, yeah, under, that understanding before, and so it was really wonderful to get that there, and then, you know, really bring all those things together into an architecture curriculum for me was like. It was wonderful. So I, I'm very fond of my learning experience there, and I'm really happy to be able to to teach there as well, albeit in their New York City campus. But it's an it's an honor to be able to contribute to the academic mm-hmm. environment at Cornell. I think in a similar way for me, I had the opportunity to interact with the the Aga Khan program for Islamic architecture when I was an undergraduate at MIT, and that started me on the course of exploring and understanding the wonderful, really uh, deep uh, history of Islamic architecture, which you may not be surprised is not part of any of the history of architecture courses, obviously, at the uh, undergraduate program at MIT and probably many other schools. And once you set yourself down that path, you start connecting with a really rich past that in my case was a part of my heritage. And I'm thinking that you may have had similar feelings when you were taking the classes that you mentioned at Cornell. Is that was that the case for you? Yeah, absolutely. I did a whole independent study on Nigerian architecture, and because we had a professor in the African Africana Studies department that focused on Black aesthetics, Black African aesthetics, I had someone I could connect with, and he could you know give me direction on places to go because architecture is an aesthetic. And so I, you know, I traveled to Nigeria, I traveled to Ghana, I was really looking at West Africa, how is, you know, how, how aesthetic is articulated in the built form, in art. And so it was really just enriching for me. And I think still sort of like is in my DNA when I think about just like design and, you know, the articulation and, and forms and methods of of representation. Mm-hmm. So then you uh, continued your studies at the graduate level at the MIT School of Architecture and Planning. And you move from architectural design in your undergraduate studies to urban design and planning. Help our listeners understand what inspired that transition. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a really an evolution of, you know, as I'd mentioned before, looking at 
um, taking courses in architecture department, as well as the planning department at Cornell and the African studies department. And I think for me, you know, particularly when I took courses in Africana studies, many of the courses dealt with the African-American experience as it relates to socioeconomic issues Mm -hmm. over time. And I found that to be really interesting and just how built the built environment was really related to that. And I wanted to understand that more, like how did the built environment connect to these socioeconomic issues impacting um, the black community over time? And I, and so I found that studying urban design, studying planning was really a, a path for me to really root myself in that and really understand also being Nigerian and having traveled to Nigeria many times growing up and also just like mm-hmm. feeling like I'm living in these two separate worlds where I travel to Nigeria, my mother's village, it has one condition, has one environment, has one level of mm-hmm. infrastructure development and then living in Brooklyn and it's mm-hmm. very different, you know, it's like opposite ends of the spectrum. And so I just, I wanted to understand that as well. Just, you know, really what is the connection between design planning and socioeconomic forces? And then how are these issues set in a global paradigm, like global perspectives on these issues as well? Mm. And so that's why I, I wanted to study urban design and planning and particularly study at MIT because MIT had such a, a, a global reach in all of their programs as well as as in their student makeup. And there was a lot of funding there to do independent projects anywhere you wanted to. So while I was at MIT, I was able to do a project in Manila, Philippines, India, Delhi in India. I went to Abuja, Nigeria for my thesis. And I was fully supported by even China. I did, I did a, a studio in China. So I was fully supported by the program to do independent projects and to do projects within the curriculum that were set in a global um, sort of perspective. So what I found really fascinating is that discussion that you talked about in terms of what actually gets built and how that is influenced by government policy and how there are different experiences for different types of Americans. So uh, I had the opportunity to uh, talk to architect Mark Gardner uh, earlier this season and of the podcast, and he brought up in particular a book uh, by uh, Richard Rothstein called uh, The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America, in particular, it uses the case study of uh, redlining. And uh, what we learned in that discussion uh, is that it's this reality that justice and injustice may not necessarily be in the most visceral, most present on the cover of a newspaper front page. Sometimes it's these ideas of a death by a thousand cuts. And Mark talks about uh, in the book uh, where they mention the differences in valuation of homes, depending literally on who's living there. And I think that that what he mentioned is that there's a real deepness to a lot of these issues. Is that something that you found in your research and your travels uh, during your graduate studies? Absolutely. And I think, and you know, I'd mentioned before about the global perspective in that Mm -hmm. These are issues that are not unique to the United States. You find, mm-hmm. you know, their counterpart in Nigeria. You find their counterpart in South Africa. You know, I lived and worked in South Africa for five years. And and a lot of that is stemming from also, you know, colonization, colonialization, and the impacts that that, that system has had on the urban environments internationally as well. So you, 
you also have these issues of exclusion and segregation and, you know, economic disinvestment also happening in in African cities. And so that was really interesting to me to see, to look at how it's happening in the United States, how it's happening globally, and what are the relationships between those those two. And so working in, in, in other cities has sort of just opened my eyes to those factors. And really, like, what do I need to avoid? What are the things, you know, really understanding it because it's so easy to replicate the things with, with a new tool, replicate the same approaches, the same trauma, the same impacts with just new tools. And so just really trying to like look at those issues of redlining, look at those issues of segregation at all angles and understand how infrastructure, the built in, the built from the process of designing and planning can contribute to injustice or contribute to more just practice. And I think an interesting perspective of that is a, a modern flipping of the script. So I uh, listened very voraciously to the entire season of uh, Shithole Countries, which is a podcast on Radiotopia. Uh, it's by a, a Ghanaian uh, writer who goes by the pseudonym Afia Kakiri. And she basically has to make a choice of whether she wants to remain living in San Francisco in circa 2018 or move back to Ghana, where her family is quite well-to-do. And it has a really, I think, interesting interplay that how wealth can kind of can extricate you from larger social issues and give you the ability to move between places very freely and make your choice as to where you live. Um, but there, she makes the point that sometimes there's some things that you can't escape, and it's often race is the thing that you can't escape regardless of wherever you go. Yeah, this, this is true. And it, it and it can play different forms. It can be, it can, you know, depending on where you go. Like if you if you say like Nigeria, everybody is black, mm-hmm. right? But then you still have stratification there. You still have stratification by class, by ethnicity. So it's just mm-hmm. and and also those underlying like desires to create division based on difference are rooted in colonization as well. So it's like you, all of these things can trace back to the same foundation, which is just, it's fascinating. And, you know, how the built environment also is used as a tool to further, like, hit that nail on the head. I think in particular, what I learned in my delving of uh, non-traditional courses of history uh, on my own, separate from school, was the reality that the caste system and India actually was a result of European colonization. It wasn't a pre-existing thing that existed. Why? Why would we do that? Um. <laughs> <laughs> so, so speaking of large ideas, uh, so you have had the opportunity to work at urban design firms, a nonprofit organization, and a university in the early part of your career and on projects both in the United States and abroad. What were your biggest takeaways from this wide array of experiences in design that you had in this formative part of your career? I think, you know, in in hindsight, looking back, I I think while I was in it, it was sort of just like I I was sort of tonal vision working in each Mm -hmm. of those sectors. But if I now sit at this place now and I look back, I would say that, you know, each sector has a unique set of tools and Mm -hmm. power and influence towards social impact. 
And I could even say that that experience of working in different sectors was kind of like my research of understanding what's the what what are the tools that the nonprofit sector has, or the private sector, or government, or academia. And I think those spaces of intersection are where is the key to maximum impact. So when I worked in university in South Africa, in particular, it was university consulting with government and really providing using the the engine of university, the learning, the research to support government in creating new policy and sort of doing research and understanding that where how policy has impacted development. When I worked in, you know, the times I've worked in urban design firms, they, many of the projects have been consulting for government as well, or consulting for developers on really large projects. Again, you know, creating a future vision for new development Um, being able to engage with different stakeholders to build consensus around those projects. So again, you know, further spaces of um, dynamic impact when these two different sectors come together. Mm -hmm. And I think also with the, while working in nonprofit, you know, nonprofit has a a certain level of agility that government does not have. Mm -hmm. And also, a certain space, a certain sort of mission-driven aspect to the work that sometimes private sector doesn't have. And so just really being able to work in that space has been mm-hmm. interesting as well and just see the the, the, the the different dynamics between all of them and how they try to affect change through their their lens or, or their sort of like path. And then in one particular area I'd like to delve into is your work experience in government agencies. So uh, you work for the city of New York across uh, different departments and your work intertwined issues of sustainability, criminal justice reform, and housing affordability, which are all now front and center in public discourse. Um, Are there tying threads with these major challenges for the city of New York in your perspective? Yeah, you know, I think that's a really great question. I think for me, the space of, of intersection or the tying threads is really about how they all land in the public realm, mm-hmm. in the spaces that people can or come, come together, that, that where people are allowed to go. And so for, I think also just like, what is the relevance of design excellence in those three different spheres has been also a tying thread and the sort of the, the ways that I've been kind of assert myself in those spaces. Um, and as well, and I would say the third thing is approaches to community engagement. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what are the ways that you engage in community around these conversations of environmental justice, you know, sustainability, climate justice around criminality in public space, what is considered a crime in public space and what is not, how do you address that criminal activity in public space, particularly particularly in communities who have been marginalized? And also how does the design of a, of a, a building, of built form, impact the affordability of housing? Um, how can the design of housing can make a positive contribution to the public realm? Um, how can you engage communities in different these different three different sp- sp- spheres where they feel empowered? Mm. They feel empowered. They understand their 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 capacity is built, um, and with respect to these three subject matters, and so that for me has been the the key 
common threads between those three spheres and really where um, the major challenges lie in New York City. And, I, and you'll, you'll see that, you know, the mayor's office, I believe, of sustainability is now the mayor's office of environmental and climate justice. You know, there's this shift with the new administration because there's a there's an recognition that communities are not being effectively engaged as it relates to issues of sustainability and climate change. There are a number of methods that the, the new mayor is using to, to really think about how the public realm can contribute to economic recovery. Mm-hmm. And so that as well, you know, is sort of another sign that um, these are challenges that are they're really trying to grapple with because economic recovery is not just about the popular areas. It's about all areas and particularly the areas that have lacked investment for a significant period of time. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the ways and the unique ways that New Yorkers are engaged is going to be critical as they're forming new plans, as um, they are addressing these challenges. And so, yeah, I'm excited for what's to come with this new administration, because I think that things are off to a really good start. I had an opportunity to meet uh, Mayor Adams at the New York Stock Exchange through a New York City EDC event. I think the biggest thing that I was able to take away is this uh, laser focus on on job creation and good paying jobs as the sustainable foundational answer to a number of the issues that we're, that we're discussing. So you launched Creative Urban Alchemy in 2010. And this year, you decided to make it your full-time endeavor. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Absolutely. And tell our listeners why you launched your firm initially and the steps along the way uh, for you deciding to do that full-time. So it's interesting, you know, through the years, I would say for the past 10, 12 years, I've been oscillating between working full-time at at different um, organizations or government agencies and whatever, and Mm -hmm. my private practice, just consulting for people. And so for me, 2010 marked a major shift because of the economic recession. Mm -hmm. I was living in California and, you know, once the economy, anything funny happens in the economy, the built environment industry is the first one to tank. No one wants to build anything. I was working for a firm and developers were just pulling project left and right. And I decided to move to South Africa in 2010. And for me, that was really the the whole world had opened up. It was just like the way things were done there, entrepreneurship was really a major vehicle for people to get projects off the ground, to be able to influence Mm -hmm. different spaces. And, and so I thought, you know, why not do this? I'm sort of just, you know, tapped into the, sh- the, the way things were moving there and just experiencing other practitioners and how they were able to make a mark for themselves. And so I, I hadn't officially registered my business then. I hadn't officially registered this business until re- recently in 2020. But I would say in then the seed was planted in my mind about being an entrepreneur and the ways in which I could, the kinds of impact, the kind of tools I had available to me, the kind of influence I could make um, in the industry, in cities, by being able to support many different projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I'd always been working at different scales, and I didn't want to lose any one of those scales. And so I think working 
as an independent consultant has allowed me to do that. And then post-pandemic now, you know, now deciding to do it full time and really experiencing two years of, you know, working from home, even though I was working also as a representative for city government for two years, I was also consulting part time. And I, even though I loved working in the housing space, what my consulting allowed me to do was work in other spaces, environmental justice space, working at the urban design scale, working at the planning scale being able to consult for mayors. And so I felt that my consulting was able to, well, allowed me to go into spaces that if I stayed at my government job, I wouldn't be able to go in those spaces. And I feel like right now with the change administration, both in New York City and in the country, there's a whole world opening up. You know, the government, federal government has recognized the important importance of equity and infrastructure, that intersection I would say in New York City, the mayor, mayor Adams is also, you know, recognized the importance of those two things to economic recovery and just equity is becoming just a, a buzzword. I hopefully, hopefully it's not just a buzzword, but really in, important mm-hmm. to thinking about future growth of cities. And so for me, I've established an expertise in that through the years, even from the time I was, you know, studying at Cornell and I'm now sort of realizing where the, the path I have been heading towards. And so I felt like now is a really good time for me to break out on my own and see where this like 20 year long career, how I can support all the different initiatives, not only happening in New York, but happening you know, across the country in major cities. And I would say even globally. I think what you're describing is very likely the beginning of a large change that is afoot. And I think the three statistics that really bring to mind how the professional sphere, how uh, voting and public policy, and how the larger social environment is undergoing massive change is the reality that right now, the majority of office workers, so people that are working, 70 million taxpayers in the United States, that the majority of them are Gen Z and millennials. I think for the reality that in this 2022 election, the majority of U.S. voters are going to be Gen Z and millennials. And the fact that we have already passed uh, the percentage that 50 percent of the United States is non-white. And I think all of these statistics, all of these numbers are what very subtly is driving both this move towards justice and, let's be very honest, this pull or this retrenchment back in response to desires for change. Are there other statistics, other things that you see being very emblematic of this this change going forward? Oh my goodness. I would say this focus on equity and infrastructure, as I'd mentioned before, Mm -hmm. the federal bill to focus on infrastructure and equity, I think is, is really tremendous because, and I think because of just like my understanding of particularly the history of of Black communities and how infrastructure has been weaponized against Black communities and really a, a desire to really grapple with it, reckon with it, and think about new approaches to, to address that issue. Not, not, you know, shovel it under a carpet or whatever and just like ignore it, but really mm-hmm. take it head on. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing that in trends in just like, 
projects that people are really coming to me to support them on in many different cities across the United States. And I'm really excited because I've, you know, used this as a studio prompt for what I've, what mm-hmm. I, when I teach architecture students and urban design students. And so it's really exciting to see these studio prompts now becoming real projects to really think about, rethink these, the highway systems, rethink infrastructure, not only for just like transportation, but then also for resilience, climate change. So, and also just like, you know, how are you engaging people so that it's empowering and it's not just like a tick box. So I'm, I'm really excited for those trends because for me, what those mean is that this is not, this is going to go beyond conversations, that it's going to be solidified just the same way mm-hmm. that racism was solidified by a highway that is going to be solidified through a planning and design so designed solution. That that is really how you you make things sustainable, as we're seeing with just the the ways that cities have been configured to be to forward apartheid or racist practice. We're we're now seeing that there's a there's a movement towards how we re, reconfiguring cities, um, the public realm to be to address um, a more just practice and to build equity. In, in city development. I think one of the most elucidating things for any young person in our industry is to get in a car and travel across America in a place that isn't New York and isn't California. And there are the things that you're able to see in a book. There are the things you're able to understand and learn about in a studio. But then when you actually are in a place, you experience the effects of transportation planning and larger urban planning in a much more uh, visceral way. So for example, last year for my technology company, we decided to be all virtual. So I lived in 12 different places over 12 months, so 2021, all across the country. And these are all purple and red places, places that I had no business being in, in a normal pre-pandemic world. And I think there's two, two of these places, particularly in vignette, tell the story of what you just described in such such clear ways. Uh, one of them is the story of the, the main highway through Durham, North Carolina, that became a suburban to urban highway to bring in dominantly white, wealthy uh, suburban commuters into their office jobs. And that was located in such a specific way in order to obliterate the Black Wall Street that had been created uh, as a wealth generation tool for, for small business owners uh, and others that are primarily Black. And when you see that replicated again and again and again, I spent a month in Texas and in Austin, Texas, the main, I loved Austin, by the way, but the main highway that goes north-south that splits the downtown into two was meant as a way to split very, very clearly to split white, wealthy portions of Austin from uh, Latino, dominantly Mexican, lower class sections of the city. And you understand that the experience now is you cross under the shadow of a long, dark, smelly highway just to go to two parts, like the cooler part and the more cooler part of downtown. And that you particularly see all across America. And I think that the the smarter cities are thinking through how do you undo those uh, generations of disinvestment and uh, weaponization of infrastructure. And I think that it probably goes all the way down to 
the level of municipal budgets. So I had a chance to spend some time in Houston, Texas, which I'm not too big of a fan of from a planning perspective because they literally have no zoning code <laughs> whatsoever. But uh, what I found, found so fascinating is that if you go around and you, so for example, I would go for runs and the neighborhoods divided by race, you can see very clearly where the sanitation department's budget is being spent for garbage pickup and for cleaning and for lawn mowing in public spaces and where it isn't. And you realize that there is this idea of justice that is a death by a thousand cuts. So I, I think I 100%, I, I would encourage any listener that's in our industry just to get in a car and go, go somewhere. Absolutely. Or even just like if you're in New York City, you can see all those same things, right? A hundred percent. Right. A hundred percent. So speaking of New York City, the perfect New York street is, as the project would suggest, in New York City. And that said, the streetscape, including the, the scale, what's where, what isn't there, are wildly different neighborhood by neighborhood. So tell our listeners about the prototypical streetscape that you chose for the subject of this project and why you chose that one in particular? This was really a, a fun project to work on. I mean, I love Claire Weiss at WXY. And so it was a pleasure just um, being in her shadow and just learning from her. So we chose Midtown, 3rd Avenue, between 33rd and 34th Street because we wanted a streetscape that possessed this like intersection of challenges and issues that we collectively felt we needed to address. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not that every street has all of the issues, but there were a key set of issues that we wanted to really tackle. And this strip was like all of them coming together in a really mashup <laughs> kind of way from, you know, issues with trash collection to street sheds, conflicting with pedestrian paths, conflicting with bike and bus lanes, you know, all the ways in which the different systems that are managed by different agencies, how they occur on the street in ways that impede a quality pedestrian experience. Mm-hmm. And so with DOT and just like the streets being the significant land in New York City, you know, why not tackle a city street? Um, and so we, we use this particular strip to sort of highlight how the issues conflict with each other. So this project is sponsored by New York Magazine. Help us understand what the prompt was that you were given and your team was given at the start of the project by the magazine. Yeah, so the, the article was written by Justin Davidson, and he brought together a, you know, a very wonderful collection of designers mm-hmm. that operate at different scales. And so he wanted to give some food for thought to the new administration because this was all done before the shift mm. de Blasio and, and, and Mayor Adams. And so he wanted to give some food for thought to the new administration in terms of key issues to tackle as they relate to the New York City street. I in particular saw it as an opportunity to really think about how streets can be a facilitator for greater connection between people. Because, you know, they're predominantly really the space that we encounter each other, that we engage with each other, mm-hmm. we engage with our local businesses. It's like it defines our neighborhood. The street defines our neighborhood. And so these can only happen when these major challenges are addressed. It only happen successfully when these major challenges are addressed. And so that sort of was our prompt. Like, you know, what? how do we tackle this 
this particular strip because he had already in his mind knew it was mm-hmm. that was the strip. And we all sort of talked about it. I was like, oh, maybe not. No, maybe another location. But, you know, I think we all came together. I'm like, okay, you know what? When we actually went to the site and walked around, I was just like, oh, you know what? Actually, <laughs> this is a really great place to sort of like highlight all the things because there was just so much going on. And really think about how you can create a there. And uh, you mentioned that you had the opportunity to collaborate with an incredible team. Tell us who you worked with, what each person did, and how the overall process went. Yeah, so the work was mainly coordinated and led by Claire Weiss and Mm -hmm. David Vega Barakowitz. David Vega Barakowitz at WXY. And the team- Their landscape- Design firm WXY. They are architecture and urban design firm. Architecture and they design, really okay. work at all scales. Okay. You know, from streetscapes to ho- housing development to master plans, they they do it all. Um, this is a, another reason why I'm just like in awe of Claire. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and and they were the perfect team to oversee this really wonderful group of designers because they operate at different scales. And so mm-hmm. you can imagine our first call. Everybody was on the call and it was just like so many voices. We're all talking at different scales. We're all talking about different. So many Zoom squares. (laughs) So their first thing was to just figure out, okay, how do we get this really brilliant group of people in sort of like in sync? Really Mm -hmm. think about this this project in a way that we're able to tap into everybody's um, unique perspectives and skill sets and and thinkings and whatnot. So they, we operated two scales. The larger system was myself, Jeanette Sadekhan at Bloomberg Associates, Claire and David. And um, we discussed the overarching ideas. Some of us went to the site, walked around, really thought about, okay, where would we take the aerial views? Where, you know, what, what would be the key issues we would tackle? What would be the underlying themes? Are we thinking about sustainability? Are we thinking about climate change? You know, all of those initial conversations really went into the foundation of like, what will be the approach for thinking about remaking this street? And then the more, and especially also because many of us had already worked in government, you know, David, David has worked for urban design division, Jeanette, transportation department, uh, myself at housing and in the mayor's office, criminal justice. So it was just like we had these different perspectives from a government perspective. And then the more detailed design ideas were explored by other team members. For example, Brandt and Hafford, the design firm, they designed the street sheds that you see in the imagery. Um, Night nurse images Mm -hmm. crafted the final rendering um, the final article was crafted by Justin Davidson. So it was really like, it was, I would say, Claire and David being able to connect to different people and really understand the intersection at the diverse scales that we all contributed and bringing that together in a final piece, a final plan. So there are many components that go into what we see at an intersection on the street in terms of physical elements. What did you see as the, you and your team see as the key components that you were able to use in executing on your design goals for this space? I think the key components is really understanding the different agencies 
get involved in the streetscape and thinking mm-hmm. about how they can how they can use their tools differently, mm. how they can be more effective, how they can be better coordinated, and and really seeing the public street as like a room, a room that can do that has many different activities happening in it. That has furniture. That has furniture. <laughs> Much as like, you know, you would craft yeah. a room and do some interior design in there. Like what what needs to happen in this urban room? And who are the parties that yeah. are responsible for those different pieces? And so how do we how do we create more space? How do we create more features in this room so that these different agencies can do their work more effectively? And so that's really I think the the underlying theme here because you know our audience was the new administration. And I think that's and that's also mm. a theme that we're seeing with in the design and planning communities. You have many different nonprofit, for-profit entities, organizations that are coming together to really promote more of this understanding of enhanced coordination between agencies, improved opportunities for the public to engage with ways of transforming the public street. So that was really the the, the key components. Excellent. And then help our listeners understand what they would see while they're walking through the perfect New York City street when it's completed. And also maybe what they hear, what they feel, maybe what they smell as they walk through the space as well. They won't be smelling trash. <laughs> okay, good. It's the not smell that they're smelling. Yes, okay, good. won't smell trash. <laughs> you may not get knocked over by one of those um, electric bicycles. <laughs> you'll see widened streets to create opportunities for passive recreation, you know, opportunities where you can Mm -hmm. just like sit and people watch if you want without feeling like, you know, you're on top of someone else or that you're Mm -hmm. in the way of a bicycle or, you know, or you're right next to a a large pile of trash. Um, You'll see improved trash collection receptacles that are also beautiful. You know, they're, they're Mm. sort of just like incorporating visual interest into the public Mm -hmm. street. You'll see uniform street sheds, the beautiful street sheds that, sheds that were designed by Brand Tafford. You'll see a reduction in traffic lanes to prioritize pedestrian activity because once you extend mm-hmm. the, the sidewalk, you're also reducing the traffic lanes. And that then will have an impact on the speed with which cars are moving on, on the street. You'll eliminate, you'll see an elimination of eyesores of the street, like scaffolding, patchwork sheds, piles of trash, like all the things that sort of just like, ugh, you know, makes you feel that way when you're walking in the street. And, you know, really thinking fully, I would say holistically, about the infrastructure for alternate forms of transit, such as biking, from Mm. bike lanes to storage facilities, really thinking just like wholeheartedly, like what are all of the needs of of this like of biking systems beyond just a lane, you know. Also prioritization of accessibility for those with mobility challenges. You know, whether you have a walker, you're in a wheelchair, or even just with a baby carriage. Just thinking about how people who are on wheels or who have challenges with moving um, can move more effectively and seamlessly in the pedestrian realm. Using the streets as conduits for sustainability, stormwater management, air pollution mitigation, through the integration of natural landscape, you'll definitely, you know, experience that while walking on this street. And, you know, as I mentioned before, the streets are outdoor rooms. And so you'll see um, seating, you'll see, you know, spaces for comfort 
and you know with all the hodgepodge things that's going on on this particular street you there you don't you can sit somewhere but you're not going to feel comfortable you don't want to be there long you want you don't want to linger so this really recrafting of the street to create places where people want to linger longer mm-hmm. is there a tie between having these spaces be ones where people are welcome to to hang out, relax, people watch, and also result in safer streets as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because the more activity you have on a street, the less opportunity there is for, for criminal activity to occur. Mm. Um, and also just like improved business mm. as well. So improved local economic development, which all has a direct tie to just criminal activity in a community. So, you know, there are all mm-hmm. of these like intangible wins that you get improving a streetscape. So I'm going to pause here to let our listeners know about uh, the sponsors of the American Building Podcast. Redist is a venture-backed technology-enabled company transforming access to public financing for small to mid-sized real estate developers. We are currently doing in-depth research with public agencies and municipal governments that handle incentives in Connecticut. Florida, Texas, and California to inform our product development. If you work for such an organization or know someone that does, please reach out to us at redist.us. And Michael Graves Architecture and Design is a full-service design firm based in Princeton, New Jersey. Following the legacy of its founder, the iconic architect Michael Graves, the firm is helping clients of all sizes realize their building goals across the United States. Learn more at michaelgraves.com. So through Creative Urban Alchemy, you've had the opportunity to work in Union City, Georgia, which is a city of 21,000 people, all the way to Seoul, Korea, which is a city of 10 million, which is like 1.2 times New York or 1.3 times New York. What are the design challenges that cities across this population spectrum face to make streets efficient for vehicles, productive for businesses, accessible for residents, like you mentioned, uh, but also safe and enjoyable for just regular people walking around? I think, you know, the ways in which they're thinking of approaches to placemaking that empowers residents to partner with city government, to transform their neighborhood Mm -hmm. streets, to address issues from community safety, to building trust, to social cohesion. Like, the streets are powerful, whether it's a, you know, commercial corridor or just like a a small-scale residential street, the ways in which you can harness the energy of a neighborhood, of businesses, to think about their streets differently can be empowering. It can really allow those streets to be the true vehicles for economic progress, for social cohesion, and for just, you know, access to to knowledge, I would say. Just really a true understanding of how government works. And so, yeah, I think these were really, uh, and, and I think inevitably that leads to building trust. Because the, if your streets are really just like the significant land used in your cities, in your neighborhoods, wherever, and people are not feeling like streets are being taken care of or that they're quality environments, you're going to feel like your government's not doing what it needs to do. 
That's fascinating. What percentage of New York City's land is streets? I don't know what that number is, but I, I've, I've seen presentations by people from the DOT who say that the largest landowner is DOT. Fascinating. Okay. So okay. Next to NYCHA. Uh, NYCHA, which is New York City uh, Housing uh, Authority. Right, right. That is fascinating. And I think particularly what I've heard uh, talked about in terms of the future of development of Jersey City is all the land that parking lots take. Uh, so I think the infrastructure together of the streets and all of the spaces to support cars and vehicles, you know, let's just throw a number out there, 40%. I think Jersey City is 40%. Maybe New York City is like 30%. But I don't think that's a crazy number. Mm-mm. Not at all. Okay. So I love to eat. And specifically, sidewalk eating comes up in almost every conversation I have with fellow designers about a post-pandemic city. So what are your hot takes on the subject and how that can be integrated into the perfect New York City street? You know, I think just as articulated in the Perfect Street article, you know, we need to make room for these activities because now they're a staple in our lives. We've had businesses who have been thriving because they've been able to extend their services into the public realm, into the street, into not only the sidewalk, but at the actual street itself. And so we we need to make room for that. They add visual interest they, and they add choice mm-hmm. for people, which are functions of a more just city. So, you know, let's think about ways that we can do it in a way that's systematized and has some guidelines around it and can be safer for you know New York City residents so that we can continue to have a level of choice on whether what we want to do with our lives and how we want to coexist. Yeah, I think particularly when there is a questioning about the supremacy of the personal vehicle in the the streetscape, then you realize that they're actually like I feel like in my my understanding of New York City has complete change when you realize, oh wait, yeah. Cars don't rule. It's actually people that rule. <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, actually, curiosity, because you, Jeanette Salikan used to work for DOT. Did you find amongst the this array of designers pushback around parking spaces? I think we all had, particularly with this street strip in the, in the meetings, because I, I didn't get a chance to meet with all of them all the time, but mm-hmm. um, in the conversations around parking, we we did have an understanding that we wanted to eliminate it mm. altogether. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> because, you know, it's in line with just like this movement towards like, you know, congestion pricing and just like, mm. you know, really thinking about the prioritization of pedestrian activity. And mm-hmm. that's one of the moves that needs to get, needs to be made in order to prioritize pedestrian activity. Okay. So, all of these amazing ideas, all these transformational concepts. Let's talk about money. So what are the typical funding sources for urban transformations, like the ones that are depicted in the perfect New York street? I think that there needs to be a a new fund. You know, when there's a rezoning happening in a neighborhood, there's something called the Neighborhood Mm -hmm. Development Fund. And so what it does is that it accompanies any resources that are allocated to a neighborhood that's experiencing a major rezoning. So if you know, schools need to be expanded or new schools need to be built or you know, uh, libraries or whatever public amenities need to be added to that community because you've now expanded the density 
in that neighborhood, this neighborhood development fund is used in that particular community. I think there, I, I think there needs to mm-hmm. be a, a counterpart to that called like the neighborhood activation fund, similar to that neighborhood development fund, but it's focused on the public realm. If you have like mm. a downtown partnership or a business improvement district that wants to do some improvements and maintenance of the public realm and its natural landscape, they can tap into this mm-hmm. neighborhood activation fund in order to fund the, those type of projects and that kind of, of work. Because very similar to the way that, you know, the impacts that increased density can have on a neighborhood and its its assets, its public assets, very similar, it has this, this same impact on its public streets, its parks, its, its open mm. spaces, its plazas. And so this fund would not only be for, you know, local organizations, it also would be for city agencies to support, you know, transformation and maintenance and operations, particularly as it relates to the public realm. I'm really glad that you highlighted maintenance because it feels like my understanding is that it is much easier to allocate funds towards the construction of something than it is towards its maintenance, whether you're a university and talking about your portfolio of buildings, because you can slap a new name onto a new building. You can't slap a new name onto a, a, um, a mop and a pail. That's a lot harder to do. And is there is that the similar dynamic at the government level, at the city level? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you, you for capital projects, you, you don't, you can't use capital expenditure for, for maintenance. And that, mm-hmm. that becomes a challenge. And um, so at, at that scale, the government scale, and then when you're thinking about just the scale of, you know, nonprofit organizations, business improvement districts without funding available mm-hmm. for maintaining those streets, mm-hmm. you know, cleaning, picking up trash, maintaining rain gardens and planting new trees and, and things like that, or maintaining existing tree pits. So all of that, when not addressed over time, has an impact on the way people see their community, the trust that they have mm-hmm. in government. Like that, I think, has more impact than new development because that's just the eroding, the erosion of just like the fabric of your community when it's not maintained over time. That's the death by a thousand cuts. Totally. You can completely, it's just, it's, and that's why I say like you have to understand these tools and how they've led to injustice, mm-hmm. just like at all angles, because you can easily replicate it. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So, okay, so the next time I see Mayor Eric Adams, and we, I'm going to tell him we need a public realm czar. And that public realm czar needs to be Ifoma Ebo. So you are now the next next one. So t- tell our listeners, once your term as the first public realm czar is done, who from amongst all the amazing people that you know, people that you've worked with in the city, would you recommend as your, your follower, as the second one? Who would you recommend? I don't know if I can give you a name, but I think their profile is that they have worked across scales and disciplines that they value equity and sustainability, mm-hmm. that they're, they have an understanding of landscape architecture, civil engineering, planning, and has worked at these scales and, and with these disciplines mm-hmm. because they are instrumental in the planning, design, and functioning of streets. And I think that 
what I sometimes have observed is that there might be a knee-jerk reaction within the private sector to choose, or sorry, the public sector to choose someone that comes from the private sector as this outsider to come bring business ideals to a city or to its processes. And I think it really discounts the experience that someone from the public sector brings to understand the processes and the ways that things are done. It's easier just to say, I'm going to bring a sledgehammer. But the question is, what is it that you're tearing down? You know, absolutely. And I think from just like my experience working at different agencies, those that know how to, how the sausage gets made, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know how, who to talk to. And sometimes it's not like an official process. Sometimes it's like you establish, you know, it's relationship building, you establish friendships with people and, and therefore you're able to get to move things along a lot quicker, you know, because, you know, our different agencies can be very bureaucratic, so many layers you don't even know who's the right person to engage with at, at the different agencies. And so the person needs to be able to, in order to hit the ground running, you need to be able to know, you know, who do you engage with at DOT? Who do you engage with at Department of Sanitation, you know, Department HPD, the Housing Preservation and Development Agency? Like, who are the people who could either answer your question, move the thing forward, or let you know who do you talk to? next? Or who, you, who, you, who do you involve or bring into the conversation? So that I, I think, you know, it's someone who has both worked in the private sector because there's a lot of innovation happening there, um, but then also who's, who's worked in government and knows how it works and can sort of like, you know, understand those silos and, and, and really bring people together. So this has been a wonderful conversation. So thank you so much for, for joining us today on the American thank Building Podcast. Thank you for having podcast. me. Absolutely. And listeners, if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, Anchor, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Uh, rate and review us on iTunes to help us reach a wider audience and follow us on Instagram at American Building Podcast. And we all know that real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Uh, hear from me, the team and Michael Graves and Redist and many of our spectacular guests like Ifoma on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach out beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Ifoma and I have made donations to the Black Space Urbanist Collective, which does powerful work to support Black communities striving for equity and justice in the built environment. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. Visit blackspace.org for more information. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building. <laughs>